So, pretty cool display, huh? You came in this morning, you're like, that is it's pretty slick. Right? Shane Bailey builds cool stuff, all right? That's the bottom line. He builds awesome stuff. And we want this here because I want you to know something about Redemption Church, right? Something that we're very sure about and certain about. That the Bible is God's Word. That the Bible is God's authority. That the Bible is the book that matters. It's the book that changes everything. It's the book that has the answers. It's the book that has the direction. It is truth. And as a church, we love the Bible. We preach the Bible. We teach the Bible. We give the Bible away for free out there in the comments. We defend the Bible. We uphold the Bible. We advocate the Bible. We point to the Bible for all the challenges, problems, hardships, or blessings of life. We make much of the Bible. For us as a church, this book is precious. It's precious. Right? We don't want to take that for granted. We don't want to minimize just how profound this book is. But here's what I want you to know this morning. Satan agrees with everything I just said. The enemy agrees with every word I just said. And here's the thing. Maybe you're just with us for the first time. We're doing this series right now called Satan Sermons. What are the sermons that Satan likes to preach? Because more than just being out in the world preaching messages that just keep directing the lost, he loves to give the concerted time to preach sermons to God's people to just get us slightly off track over the course of time. And so he's looking at the church and he's constantly wondering, how can I manipulate this? How can I change this? How can I move them just a degree in this generation to get them way off track in future generations, that's what he loves to do. And so he'll hear everything I just said, and he'll say, yes, oh, that's true, that's true, that's true too. See, the, the thing about Satan, when it comes to the Bible, is that he quotes it. He quotes it. Matter of fact, my Bible is his Bible. He reads this Bible all the time. He knows this Bible all the time. He quotes this Bible all the time. And here's the thing, he promotes the Bible all the time. Some of you may not believe that. You might no. See, Satan reveres the Bible all the time. And you may not believe that also. I'm going to go so far as to say Satan will say the Bible is a treasure. It is a treasure. Now, I want you to just hold on to that for a second. I'm going to share something that there's a few things in my life that I really enjoy doing. There's things that I just find to be fun. One of the things I love doing is going to a museum. Love museums, right? And I don't know how you approach museums. I know when I walk in, kind of the first thing I do is I just kind of take in the expanse. It's like kind of going to the mall, like, wow, there's options, you know? So, like, that's how I hit, hit the museum, right? And I'll scan the walls and kind of scan the middle. And you know what always grabs my attention is the display case that stands on its own. Like the ones on the walls, those are cool, they're, they have a lot of stuff in them, but you always know when you see the cases out in the middle, oftentimes they're not much bigger than this. And every time I see those, I go, oh, that's something special, right? Because it has its own case. It was so important they didn't put it with all the other knickknacks along the walls. They put it right out there in the middle, has its own case because it's special, it's sacred, it's priceless, it's a treasure. And so I always go over and I start looking at whatever it is and I, I'm just mesmerized, you know, and I don't want to touch the glass, but I want to touch the glass and I wish I could, you know, and I'm just looking because it's precious. Maybe it's Abraham Lincoln's hat. 
And you just look at this hat. Wow, he wore that hat, right? George Washington's teeth, which is so bizarre. Like, I can't wait to get to the Smithsonian. They're made of wood, really? Yes, let's keep staring. You know, like, but that's what we do, right? You can see Beethoven's walking stick. You can go and see it under glass. There's, there's his walking stick. You can see Lewis's compass that he used for the expedition out to the west, and you just look at that compass, and you're mesmerized by the compass. Every one of those precious and protected treasures. Here's, here's the thing about every one of those. Every one of those was once a daily practical tool elevated to an untouchable treasure. Every one of those a practical tool. That, that hat on Abraham Lincoln's head, he didn't think much of it except, hey, it keeps the rain off. Beethoven, his stick kept him upright. Lewis, go that way. I know that way's west. And they held them every day and they used them every day and they mattered every single day because they brought practical help to their life every day. In other words, the items under glass were once tools and not treasures. But eventually they become treasures and not tools. And if there's anything Satan wants to push is that the Bible is such a treasure, it's better here like this. It's better off to, to be this thing you revere. You lift up in esteem. You say it's so important. But for whatever you do, please don't let your Bible become like this one. A tool. This was the first Bible. Look at that. It's, it's not good. Um, Ellen gave me this Bible when we started dating my sophomore year of high school. This Bible... I don't know. coming apart it's all marked up my kids I, I gave it to my son and he's like dad it's all messy <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a tool it is a daily necessary tool and and what the enemy wants to do is say no 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 make it a treasure that's where you should have it. And you might go, no, I don't do that, Matt. I don't put my Bible in a glass case and just stare at it like it's a treasure. And I get that, you know what? I don't believe we do in a technical sense, but I do believe we do it in an indirect kind of sense. Where we're going to talk about, it's so important, it's so critical, it's so valuable. And Satan will say, yeah, just keep saying how important and critical and valuable it is. Just hopefully you don't engage it much. See, what Satan wants to do more than just simply undermine it, which is one tactic he takes, right? You just read atheists and he uses that narrative to undermine it. But there's this whole other one for the church where he says, boy, if I could just hide it in plain sight, that would be perfect. If I can have it in their bedrooms and living rooms and in their car and if they'll carry it with them to church and they'll carry it back out of church and they'll talk about how it's the most important book in the world and everything else, that is perfect. And so what he does is he begins to just plant these little ideas and thoughts and problems and issues and, and, and realities so that practically speaking, it might as well be under glass. Right? Practically speaking. So I think when Satan preaches this message, he preaches four points. We're going to walk through the four points. He preaches the four points of how he can undermine the Bible and the life of the Christian. 
and we may not even realize he's doing it. And so the first point I want to highlight, I want to start with a video. I think the video captures it well. The video is a little bit lighthearted, which helps after I started crying. Um, but I think it captures it well, and it won't take you long to figure out what the first point is. Why don't you go ahead and play that first clip? You co-sponsored a bill requiring the display of the Ten Commandments in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Mm -hmm. Why was that important to you? Well, the Ten Commandments is, is not a bad thing mm -hmm. uh, for people to understand and to respect. I'm with you. Where better place could you have something like that than in a judicial building mm -hmm. or in a courthouse? That is a good question. Can you think of any better building to put the Ten Commandments in than in a public building? No. I think if we were totally without them, we may lose a sense of our direction. What are the Ten Commandments? What are all of them? Mm. You want me to name them yeah, all? Yeah, please. Mm. Uh, don't murder. Don't lie. Mm -hmm. Don't steal. Uh, I can't name them all. So, Satan's first point. See the Bible as a treasure as long as you don't know what it says. See the Bible as a treasure as long as you don't know what it says. Now, it's interesting. It's funny. I'll, I'll talk to, to unbelievers who are very critical of the Bible, right? And they want to point out all the flaws. You know what they always say to me? They say, you know what? I've read the Bible from cover to cover, and it's filled with contradictions. And my first thing is, you have not read it to cover to cover because Christians don't do that, right? Like... <laughs> It just it doesn't happen, right? If they're not doing it, you're not doing it. You picked up some other book that rips on the Bible. You probably found a few of the verses in the Bible, the Bible, the book ripped on about the Bible, and then you called that a cover-to-cover -cover read, right? That's what you did. But the reality is, even we as Christians who say this book is treasured, priceless, holy, authoritative, word of God, yes, but we struggle to know what it says. We defend it, we revere it, we treasure it, but we may not actually know it or read it with any regularity. It's like a conviction unexercised, right? It's like the guy that's like, gun rights! Do you have a gun? No, no. Gun rights! Right? Wouldn't make any sense. You'd be like, maybe you should have like one, you know, if you're going to have that kind of conviction. Well, it's the same idea here. Right? And, and what happens with us as Christians, and again, you might go, what a jerk. He's just like pointing the finger at all of us. No, I'm warning us that what we do sometimes is we go, it's so important, it's so revered, but we talk in generalities because we don't really know its content. I'm not saying you need to know everything in the Bible. I'm not asking you to know like Numbers 10, 10. I'm not asking you to know that. But I think like the Golden Rule, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, just some like highlights. We should know. Right? We should know. But we talk in generalities. We'll say, well, somewhere in the Bible, or the good book says, and then we say things that the good book doesn't even say, like, hey, cleanliness is next to godliness, as the good book says, you know, as days of our lives, or what, you know, whatever it is, sands through the hourglass. You know, I'm like, no, it doesn't say that. Soap opera says that. The Bible doesn't say that, right? So we, we get kind of sucked into these generalities. And that's where Satan wants it, to where we think we feel pretty good about ourselves because we hold it in high esteem, but if we don't actually open it up, then our esteem isn't proportionate 
to, to what we really do, right? That's, that's the problem. We see it as a treasure, not a tool. In fact, here's some stats. Up here, we can bring that up. Uh, here's some stats that uh, groups like Gallup and Barna have put together to show us things like fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. That's not uh, Christians necessarily. That's just in our culture. They're dealing with biblical illiteracy, right? Uh, but many professing Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples. 60% of Americans cannot name even five of the Ten Commandments, or a senator that pushes for them can name three. Um, 82% of Americans believe God helps those who can help themselves and that that is a Bible verse. <laughs> right? 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. <laughs> so did two tri- time-traveling guys named Bill and Ted. All right? So, um, a survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over half, 50%, thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. It was a rough relationship. Um, and a considerable number responded in one poll indicated they thought Billy Graham was the one who preached the Sermon on the Mount. All right? So, kind of funny, painfully true. We'll see some stats later that are going to be far more painful than those we just looked at. Right? But it goes back to this thing that we say, it's treasured, I just don't know it. It's important, I, I just don't read it that much. Like in the late 1960s, what happened within American culture was something pretty monumental. Uh, The state and the government said, we do not want the Bible and prayer any longer a part of the education of the classroom in high schools and elementary schools throughout the country. Removed. You as a student can bring a Bible, a teacher can have a Bible for themselves, but they cannot teach the Bible in class, they cannot pray with students in class. And Christians flipped out, and they stay flipped out. Right? How dare, if we would have left the Bible and prayer in the public classroom, this country might be better. And my thing is, yeah, but if you don't do it in your living room as a family, why are you freaking out about the school? Right? So, again, that's treasure. Then we go, it matters. How dare they take it out of the public school? And God goes, how dare I've given it to my people and they don't read it. Right? But the enemy loves that. Nope, yeah, you guys should get really, really mad, fired up. This book should be in school. Prayer should be in school. You guys keep, keep getting angry about that. You're so angry about that, you're sitting in your living room doing this to the Bible about how they don't read it in school. Stays nice and close, stays a treasure. Not a tool. The enemy loves it. Even in churches, right? For the last 50 years, we as churches, we, we, we started getting into this mode that says, oh man, the Bible's been so done. It's been so done. We've got to find a compelling thing to reach the masses because the Bible itself isn't going to do it. We've got to come up with some other stuff that's going to be really cool. So we're like, man, we gotta, well, I mean, we're going to use the Bible. Don't be wrong. We're not going to remove the Bible completely from the equation, but we're going to use the Bible more as therapy, how you can be a better you, how your family can be a better family, your money can be better money. Your soul can be a better soul as far as your emotional makeup. And so we started preaching therapy at the cost of saying, here's some hard things in the Bible. We just preach the things that brought therapy. Or, and this is Satan's favorite, he wants to mistake morality for Scripture. So we start preaching a lot of morality. Political morality, moral majority, all of this moral stuff. And it makes us think, well, I must be biblical because I'm being moral. Right? As though all the other religions of the world don't have moral codes and not a Bible. So Satan will use the whole morality thing. Church has got really into the morality, but not teaching all of what the Bible says. Or some churches just got into the encouragement game. Every Sunday, I'm here to inspire you, right? Like that. 
And that's all I'm going to do. Every week, you're going to walk out of here, you're going to be drenched in syrup. Right? That's what we started doing. There's been seasons in my being a pastor where I've had that like, gosh, man, yeah, the Bible's been so done. Oh, I don't want to preach that passage. I don't want to preach that passage. I don't want to preach that passage. You know, the great thing about sometimes preaching through books of the Bible, you can't escape the passages. Holy cow. Right? So we started to sell out because in the end, you know what? Other things are more important. And Satan goes, that's perfect. Because all of those churches that do all of those things, all of these people that make all of these protests, all of us Christians that hold up this Bible with great regard and reverence as treasure, Satan says, that's awesome. As long as it's not a tool. As long as you don't know what it says, I'm okay with you getting all excited about it. And you may say, man, I don't do that. I don't do that. And I was wrestling with this in my own life. I'm like, do, do I do this in practical ways, you know? And, 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 and I go, man, sometimes I do because here's how it happens. You know, I love the Bible, but... And then whatever the statement is after the but. I love the Bible, but it's just really hard to read. I love the Bible, but I just, gosh, I just run out of time. I love the Bible, but sometimes it's just really dull, <laughs> right? I love the Bible, but I just don't get it. I know it's important, but we all have a but statement. We all have a but statement. And the but statement at the core is, I know it's super, super critical. It's a treasure. I should probably handle it quite a bit because it's such a treasure, but... And whatever the but is. And Satan says, that's perfect. That's perfect. Stay right there. Stay right there. I'm hiding it in plain sight. You can look at it every day. You can admire it every day. Big, bright light, everything. It's awesome. That's where he wants us. That's his first point. Now, maybe he doesn't get us on the first point, so he maybe turns to a second point. And the second point, the Bible is a treasure as long as you don't know what it means. Maybe you know what it says, but you don't really know what it means. Now, when I say that, I'm not, I'm not saying the Bible is an easy book, right? I'm not, I'm not claiming that. Like Proverbs, that's like easy. That's rookie stuff, right? You read Proverbs, and everybody's like, yeah, I got that, man. Like, you know, got it. Don't be stupid. Perfect, right? Then you graduate to Revelation, you're like, mind blown. I don't even know what to do with this book, man. All I know is there's trumpets and bowls and seals and crazy flying monkeys, and I don't know, you know, what to do with this book. And I get it that Revelation's a pretty tough book. A book like Proverbs is a pretty easy book. Uh, but then there's everything in between. And so I'm not saying the Bible's an easy book. I'm not going to pretend to, which is why I go back to the idea again, like this old Bible that I have here, it's a tool. And here's what that means. You have to learn how to use a tool, right? And I think sometimes as Christians, we act like, well, no, okay, it's a tool, but it should be like a broom, right? Like, I can just pick it up and sweep. Like, anybody can learn a broom in 30 seconds unless it's your teenage son, and then... It takes longer, right? But, but like, like, you know, you go, so it should be an easy tool. And they go, no, the Bible is, is a difficult tool. Uh, the Bible's like learning to drive a car, right? There's like the initial big learning curve, and then over the course of years, you really get better at it. Insurance companies know this, right? So they have this kind of graduated system of, now we think you're probably better at this than you were before. And law enforcement says, all right, you can drive by yourself, but nobody else. You can drive with only siblings. Now you can drive with your own. They all know that it's a tool that takes time to become efficient with. And the Bible is that same kind of tool. It takes time to become efficient with it. But if we as Christians go, man, I don't have the time to become efficient, I, I might 
read what it says, but I don't really know what it means. And, and, and how many, I'm not going to ask for hands because we'll all raise them. Um, so might as well do it. Um, but like how many times have you grabbed your Bible because you're going to do the Bible read through in a year, let's say. You jump into it, man. And maybe you really stick with it for a while. But you get into certain books like Jeremiah uh, or Ezekiel or whatever else. And, and that day it was four chapters and you read it and you closed your Bible and you said, I have no clue what that just said. Nothing. And if I said, just give me one simple idea, one hint, you'd be like, God. You know, like, like <laughs> anything else? Anything else? And, and, and so what we do is we go, gosh, man, I, I'm not taking the time to understand what the tool, how it works, but I'm just going for volume. I got through four chapters. Hey, God, uh, do something with that. He's like, awesome, you can count to four. You know, we're good. But that's sometimes what we do because we go, I, I, don't, I, I don't want to take the time to know what it, what it means. Or we'll read it and we'll even go, man, I don't know what that means. And we'll kind of think, I should find out what that means. Or I should have a hot pocket. You know, like, like <laughs> right? Because that would be awesome. Nothing like just breaded lava, all right? So, right? so, so we, we, we don't take the time. To, to make the investment. And it's so weird. I mean, think about the other things. We'll get a question in our head and we'll just go right to Bing, right? Like, why is abbreviation such a long word? You know, and we'll, we'll ask these questions, just randomly, how many threads are on a baseball? Like anything that pops into our mind, we have these resources nowadays to go get an answer. But when we have this question about the Bible, it's amazing how much we go, man, that would take some effort. It's just, it's going to take time, I don't have time, I might read it, four chapters, God's got to be able to use that, it's some kind of miracle through osmosis, I don't know, so, good to go, and so we maybe read it, but we don't know what it means, and we don't take the time to understand what it means, or we treat it like some kind of faith-filled fortune cookie, right, so we'll, we'll kind of crack and go, what does it have for me today, yeah, I don't know what that is, never mind, you know, like, because we're not learning the tool, so we say, it's a treasure, and I read it, but I don't know what it means. And while I've got more tools than anybody ever in human history to understand what it means, I'm not going to take the time to understand the tool because I've got other things to do, like go to the gym. I've got other things to do, like watch Amazing Race. I've got other things to do, like watch reality television at large. Yippee-dee, all right? So I've got better things to do. And Satan says, perfect, perfect. Got you right where I want you. Stay there. It's perfect. Now, maybe that's not the thing. Maybe it's the third point he teaches, which is the Bible is a treasure as long as you don't believe all of what it says. The Bible is a treasure as long as you don't believe all of what it says, right? Um, and, and it's amazing. Um, even among uh, evangelicals, uh, some of how they see the Bible. So Christians, evangelicals, it bleeds into other aspects of Christianity, but it's some pretty interesting things. In fact, I think we have another stat page right here. Uh, let's see, 54% believe truth can be discovered only through logic, human reasoning, and personal experience. That's evangelicals, by the way. Right? 44% of Baptists, you know, Baptists, the ones that are rigid, those ones, polled, do not believe that the Bible is totally accurate. 74% of clergy in America no longer believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures. 37% of evangelicals reject the claim that Jesus is the only way to heaven. 52% of American Christians agreed that religions other than Christianity can lead to eternal life. 7 out of 10 born-again Christians said they do not believe in moral absolutes. And only 1 out of 10 Christians based their moral decision-making on the principles taught in the Bible, according to the poll. 
Now you're looking around going, the other nine people around me? No, all right, don't do that. Um, Don't do that, all right? But there is a truth that will say, it's a treasure. But then there's these little subtopics that we break rank with on the treasure. Maybe it's, Bible says certain things about sexuality and about marriage and about purity, and we go, that's not practical in the 21st century. That's not reality. And it's not hurting me. It doesn't affect anybody. It's not a big deal. And so... We don't believe all of it, right? Maybe it's just about how we should conduct ourselves when somebody wrongs us, that we shouldn't get revenge, but we go, no, 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 we're getting revenge, and that's just, that's nice. Jesus could do it, right? But, but I, I can't do it. I don't even believe I need to do it, right? Or we go, man, I, I love Jesus. I'm a red-letter Christian, but hell, no way. Forgetting that Jesus is the only guy that preaches hell in the whole Bible, pretty much. Right? So we just start to decide, pick and choose. What we do is we become editors. We become editors. And even evangelicals do it. The polls show us. My interaction with Christians over the years show me that. There'll be people that, I mean, are just awesome and great and solid and I love and you know, respect. And we'll be talking about something. They'll be like, oh yeah, I don't believe that. I'm like, what? It's like a major deal. Yeah, I don't believe that. You know? And since so it's perfect. Believe most of it, believe a lot of it. Think it's important, think it's a treasure. Revere it. Just just pick and choose it. Right? Pick and choose it. And that's sometimes what people do. Like that, don't like that. Oh, love forgiveness, hate hell. Love the golden rule, love helping the poor. Oh, don't like let vengeance be the Lord's. Don't like that. Right? Oh, I love, hey, my, my child should not have sex before marriage. Oh, I love that. Oh, but I surf porn. Uh, I'm fooling around with the neighbor husband, but boy, if my daughter ever had sex. Right? So those are the ways that the enemy says, yeah, just keep picking and choosing. And imagine if everything else in life was picking and choosing. Imagine if it was payday and what you found out is your boss picks and chooses who they're paying that week. Right? Wouldn't that be swell? Imagine like you take your garbage to the curb and the garbage guy's like, ah, pick that one today, not that one. Right? Going for 6 out of 12, that's my goal. You'd be like, what a jerk, man. Can't pick and choose. But that's sometimes what we struggle with. Now here's the crazy thing about picking and choosing. You know who beat us to this? Atheists. Atheists beat us to this on the Bible. Matter of fact, we have another slide. Check this out. This is a real thing. The Skeptic's Bible. Right? You can go online, look up the Skeptic's Bible, it's all there. And it looks like this, Genesis, there's nothing good in Genesis. That's what it says, Genesis, there's nothing good in Genesis. And it gets to Exodus, oh, there's some good stuff there that we like. Chop, 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 put it together. Oddly enough, it gets to Leviticus, there's stuff in Leviticus they like. You should read it, right? There's stuff in Numbers they like, there's stuff in Deuteronomy they like. And if they like something back in Numbers, that's nuts, all right? But then they get to like Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Uh, nothing good there. Nothing good there. Nothing good there. Nothing good there. They get to Jesus. They like a lot of stuff Jesus says. They get to Second Thessalonians. Nothing good there. All right. They just hack away, pick and choose on a much broader level. And, and, and yet, at times, we do that too. We may not ever say we would cut it out. We might not be so brazen, but we just start kind of function and think and believe and hold certain little hidden convictions that look a lot like that. Right? It's pick and choose. 
right? There's, there, there's other things, too, that, I, that if I matter of fact, probably with this Bible would do a, a better job. I call it the plopping promise, <laughs> right? We're like, gosh, I don't, I don't know if I want to take this whole book like, at face value. I mean, I do, generically, uh, but we just kind of, where does it open? Ah, close our eyes, right? Ever do that one? All right, that page, if, oh, I feel a bump. That's God. All right. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that works. That's awesome. All right, you know, that was really good. I needed that just now. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, there's no lie. That brings me to tears. All right. Um, other times that doesn't work so well. All right. <laughs> Or other times you don't like what it says, right? But it's all truth. It's all God's truth. But Satan wants us to go, nah, not all of it's truth. Parts of you like are truth. Parts you don't like aren't truth. But as long as you treasure the whole thing, you're good to go, right? And that's his lie. And all of this steams toward an ultimate point, an ultimate point that he gets to. Here's the ultimate point, sermon point number four that Satan preaches. The Bible is a treasure as long as you don't know what it really is. The Bible is a treasure as long as you don't know what it really is. Now, here is a cultural pop quiz right now. We're going to see how you do. We're going to bring up this next picture. Who recognizes what this set is from? Anyone recognizes this set? This, you have to go back to the 70s for this. Does anybody remember a show called The Liars Club? Ah, see? I knew you would because you remember Farrell's ice cream too. You're brilliant, all right? So... Yeah. When I was growing up as a kid, there was a show called The Liars Club, right? And they would take this panel, and it was always the same panel of celebrities. Or <laughs> I'm like, who are they? I don't even know, all right? Like, one dude is just brazenly tan, and the other one is like, oh, really, come on. You know, so, like, that's what they are. But they would take some object and put it on the tray in front of Larry there, and... Uh, and, and it would be something you'd never seen before, and then they would pass it down, and each one would say what it was. Three would be lying, one would tell the truth. And it'd be some contraption, they'd be like, this is a milking machine for goats in Alaska. You know? And then the next one would have, you know, no, it's not, it's the, you know, and they would all go, and one was true and the others were lies. And what Satan loves to do with the Bible is to kind of play the game of the liar's club. Right? So call it a lot of different things, just don't call it what it actually is. And, and so, uh, even the title of this morning is, The Bible's a Helpful Book. He doesn't mind that description. The Bible's a helpful book. The Bible's a good book. The Bible is a book filled with wisdom. The Bible is filled with great myth and great story and great illustration and great parable. He doesn't have a problem with that. He loves all the labels. He'll pass that down, the Liars Club row, and everybody's kind of giving a description that's kind of believable, but it doesn't tell the full story, or maybe it isn't the story at all. Satan will pass that down, because again, even sometimes it gets to a place where Satan one minute's going to say, the Bible is a helpful book, and the next minute he's going to say, the Bible is a destructive, horrible, religious, bloodthirsty book. And you go, well, why does Satan tell both stories? And here's the reason. He's not trying to build a theology. He's just building a distraction. Right? Satan will always speak to the polar opposites because it gets the job done. It distracts us from the truth. So he will say both it is a treasure and it is a violent weapon out of the same mouth in the same conversation if it causes us to go, well, which is true? 
So he just keeps passing it down. There's all these kinds of lies, everything else. That's what he does. And so he says, it's a book of wisdom. It's a book of insight. It's a book of knowledge, everything else. Can I tell you um, his favorite narrative to describe what it is? His favorite narrative is this. The Bible is an amazing piece of literature. It is an amazing piece of literature. Here's how certain I am that this is what he loves. Go ahead and bring up this next slide. Berkeley, English. You can take English C-107. What is that? The Bible is literature. In this class, we will read a selection of biblical texts as literature. That is, we will read them through with many interpretive lenses, but not as divine revelation. And highlights added just by me. They didn't do that. They would just say it casually. So you can go to Berkeley... You can teach the Bible. You might go, well, that's Berkeley. You know, Berkeley's Berkeley. They do what they do. All right, we'll go ahead and bring up the next slide. These were just my top obvious hits. You can go to Bellevue College, take Bible as literature. You can go to MIT, take Bible as literature. You can go to Oregon State University, Bible as literature. ASU, the potty school! Take the Bible as literature. You can go to UNLV, take the Bible as literature. You can go to University of Washington, take the Bible as literature. Yeah, the Bible got out of the high school it got jammed perfectly into the college. And colleges all across the country that don't care at all about the authority of Scripture teach it every day. Every day. When you think that Satan isn't trying to advocate the Bible, you're not looking at college websites. You're not looking. Because every day, it's a treasured piece of literature. In fact, here's the craziest one right here. I tried to use a lot of cultural example today so you could kind of get it. Um, here, here's an interesting book. It's by um, a man who calls himself the devil's um, uh, priest or the devil's chaplain, right? Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The Devil's Chaplain. Well, this book is The God Delusion, right? Very popular book a couple of years ago. Bestseller, everything else. And so you get a sense of where Richard comes from in this book. He opens the book this way. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, uh, pesticidal, uh, filicidal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. So he doesn't like God, all right? Um, he clearly stands opposed to God. Now, what's interesting is you get later into the book, he spends about three chapters talking about how the only being worse than the God of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. Totally rips on Jesus. And then he spends a great deal of time ripping on how foolish, insane, destructive, harmful, and even uh, child abuse is, is, is a reality to him when it comes to teaching the Bible to kids, right? Everything else. So he's got strong opinions of the Bible. But then here's what he says at the end of one of these chapters. He says, but I must admit that even... I am a little taken back by the biblical ignorance commonly displayed among people educated in more recent decades. In fact, he says, a Gallup poll in the United States of America found the following. Three-quarters of Catholics and Protestants could not name a single Old Testament prophet. More than two-thirds did not know who preached the Sermon on the Mount. A substantial number thought that Moses was one of Jesus' twelve disciples. And so then he goes, all right, let me build the case for why the Bible as literature would be really valuable. The King James Bible of 1611, the authorized version, includes passages of outstanding literary merit of its own right, such as the examples of Song of Songs and the sublime Ecclesiastes. Right? He says, to this, the main reason the English Bible needs 
the guy that hates God. The main reason the English Bible needs to be a part of our education is that it is a major source book for literary culture. And he goes on to say, he says, an atheistic worldview provides no justification for cutting the Bible out of our education. We can give up a belief in God while not losing touch with a treasured heritage. So, the devil's chaplain gets it. We know what the enemy's up to. We know what he does. He says, see, it is literature or insight or advice or history or good or helpful or nice or special or sentimental, but please do not see it as authoritative. Do not see it as divine revelation. Do not see it as from God. Do not see it as a tool that can change your life. Keep it under glass. That's where he wants it. Because he knows if we pull it from the case, if we pull it from the case and it begins to be read and understood and lived out and taken in its full authority and it's a tool that begins to become worn and tattered and frayed, that will mark the life of somebody that's not. And he knows it. So every day as he puts it in plain light for all Christians to see, every day there he is, he's like, oh, I hope they don't open the glass. Oh, I hope they don't take it as full and true. Oh, I hope they don't really start to get it. But I'll leave it out there in the open because I'm better off with them just admiring it. Because then they feel close to it even though they're far from it. They feel connected to it even though they're really distant from it. Right? That's what Satan wants to do. Right? So there's the lies. There's the sermons. Now what's the truth? What's the truth? This will come in rapid fire, but here's the truth. The truth is, the Bible is a treasure. I don't want you to walk out of here and say, Matt said the Bible's not a treasure. And that's what you might do. It's not a treasure. No, it's a treasure. Right? In fact, David said this in Psalm 19.10, the scriptures are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold, more desirable. desirable. Let me give you a sense of reference. Here is my money clip. Right? This little item right here pretty much holds the totality of all the ways that I can have treasure in this life. In other words, it has my social security card in here, has my driver's license for transportation, has my insurance information if there's ever a problem, it has all of my banking cards, it has cash, it has everything else. This is probably the sum of how I have access to the treasures of the world. Right? Right here. And David, writing the psalm, says, and this is more precious than this. This matters more than this. This will soothe you more than this. This will help you more than this. This will guide you more than this. This will rescue you more than this. This will fulfill you more than this. So it's a treasure. That's true. But it is a treasure that is a tool for everyday living. It's not a treasure to be kept under glass. It's a treasure to be handled, to be touched, to be open, to be read, to be understood, to be memorized, to be meditated on, to be lived out, to be held to. In fact, in that passage where David says it's a treasure, he starts off by saying, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. See, Satan's got an entire culture depressed, anxiety-ridden, stressed out, burdened under all kinds of weight. Most of the time, the weight is related to this. Right? 
And He knows if we bust this out, we might have a soul revived. And He doesn't want that. So don't open it. Keep worrying about this. Matter of fact, you can even set this right there. Worry about it. Worry about the problems of life, the anxieties and the issues and the stuff. Just don't read it because that will revive your soul. He says the decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible at times to look at and go, man, I'm trying to understand what that means. But there's a lot of other things where I'm like, yeah, I got that. That's pretty easy. Most of the things, oh, yep, that's it's pretty clear. Especially in the things where I look for wisdom. How should I treat an enemy? Oh, yeah, it tells me that. I don't like it, but it tells me. Right? When I'm burdened, what should I do? Well, don't worry about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, make your, your requests known to God. And he says, with thanksgiving in that. Well, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm not supposed to be anxious. I'm supposed to pray with thanksgiving. Okay, he tells me. Right? Makes wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. Right? When we do what it says, there's joy. When we break it, there's not. There may be joy for a season. And that's not joy. That's just titillation. That's just excitement. That's just misplaced enthusiasm. It's not joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are clear giving insight for living, right? And from that, that's why David says they are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. It is a treasure, but it is a treasure that is a tool for everyday living. Everyday living, right? And so if we own this and believe this, all hell breaks loose. All hell breaks loose at two different levels. One is this. As soon as you start reading it, understanding it, believing it, doing it, the enemy says, holy crap. He does. He'll say, holy crap. i got, I got to go stomp that out. He will jerk with your life if you take this seriously. If your life is coasting pretty good, you're not taking it seriously, I think. You're like, oh, thanks for that. Um, But the other reason that hell breaks loose is because literally, it's like the bondage of sin cannot stick to the Teflon of the truth. It just breaks loose. Hell just comes off. Because we take the word serious. Why do we take the word serious? First of all, because the word of God is truth. The word of God is truth. Jesus says, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Jesus is very clear. He's praying for us. It's just before he's going to go to the cross. And he's saying, Father, God, make them holy. And he doesn't say it in a vacuum. He says, by your truth, by your word. Right? We don't just get to sit here every day and say, like, all right, drop it on me. We have to go here. And that's where he makes us holy. Because the word is truth. It's where he imprints the life of God into our heart and our soul and our mind. Imprints heaven into us, right? So... The Word of God is truth. Why is it truth? Because the Word of God is authoritative truth. It's authoritative. Peter, our good friend who blew it and was restored and then helped start the church and teach great things, said this. He says, you must pay close attention to what the prophets wrote, for their words are like a a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ, the morning star, shines in your heart. So man, don't lose sight of what the prophets said. He says, realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came 
from the prophet's own understanding or from human intuitiveness or intuition or initiative or any of those things. He says, no, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. It is not our words, it's His words. It's not our truth, it's His truth. It's not our message, it's His message. It is. And when somebody says, no, 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 man, this is, this is Constantine hooking up with a bunch of dudes in 300 A.D. and deciding what the Bible is, they don't know history much more anything else because that's not the narrative. That's just another Satan lie that says, no, 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 guys, just put this together. It's just a bunch of dudes in the desert who didn't like women and wanted to write. Right. Because nobody thinks, where do we find? Here's the weird thing. Nobody... Nobody even puts the pieces together. Richard Dawkins says, the Bible is one of the most profound pieces of literary truth in all of the world. Written by a fisherman, written by a dude that was a tax collector, written by nomads in the desert with no education, written by dudes that were just like herding sheep and then God said, write this, okay. Yeah, those are literary masterpiece artists right there. Right? Now, it's because it's not advice, it's revelation. It isn't just good ideas, it's divine truth. So it's authoritative truth. More than that, the Word of God is sufficient truth. Sufficient truth, right? All Scripture is given by God, breathed by God, spoken by God, comes from God's very mouth, and is profitable for all these things so that we may be fully equipped for every good work. What it means when we say God's Word is sufficient, we're saying it has everything we need for life and godliness. It doesn't answer every question we have. Right? We can't go, well, it's not like, it's not like Bing. Like, what do they call them apartments if they're so close? You know, like, you're not going to find that in here. Right? But you're going to find um, purpose, power, worship. You're going to know how to interact with people, spouses, family. You're, you're going to know how to face hardship as well as victory. Right? All the things you need for the, the, the most substantial parts of life the scriptures are sufficient to provide you with. What do I do when I, I'm falsely accused? This is what you do. What do I do when somebody's against me? This is what I do. What do I do if I've harmed somebody? This is what I do. What do you do if you, you know, whatever it is, you're engaged in a fight with your spouse? This is what I do. Right? It has all those answers. And what we need to do is believe that it does because the word of God is not only truth, it's authoritative truth, and it is sufficient truth. It's also powerful truth. Powerful truth, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The pen is mightier than the sword, but this is the only pen sword, right? And there's a reason for this. This is the only, this is the only pen sword where the author lives in you where the author resides in your life, where the author takes what he has written and interacts in you in such a way to bring out a truth in there that is so different than even how a Richard Dawkins is going to read it. You could read the same passage as Richard Dawkins and he's going to say, well, that is a masterful piece of prose. <laughs> and you're going to read it with a whole different kind of weight and power and importance in your life because the Holy Spirit, the author, is in you, Right? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, the Spirit connects spiritual truths with spiritual people. He's the conduit to the connection. So when we read this, that's what it is. And, 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 and because of this, that means that the Word of God really has power. 
It really has power. When the Christian takes it up and reads it, there's something truly powerful in the book. It's not just a text. It's not just words on the page. It is God speaking and showing. I don't know about you. I know in my life there are hard times. There are hard times. And what I do is I grab my Bible in those hard times and I go right to the Psalms. And I just read those psalms and I can be anxiety-ridden, I can be angry, I can be frustrated, I can be scared. And I begin to read those psalms and I go, I'm glad I wasn't David. And I'm glad that David faced those things. Because I learned from David, who learned from God, and God teaches me through David. And there is power in that. There is power. See, here's the thing. Here's the main thing Satan doesn't want you to realize about the Bible, why he doesn't want you to know what it really is. It's the reality that the Word of God, at its core, is hopeful truth. It is hopeful truth. Romans 15, 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Jesus says in John 10 that the enemy came to kill, steal, and to destroy. He will do that every way possible. He he will do that in our homes and lives with this book sitting on our coffee table. He will do that in our homes and lives in any way he can see fit. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And what he ultimately wants to do in you is to rob you of faith, and to rob you of hope, to rob you of joy, rob you of peace. Right? That's what he wants to do. Which is why Jesus said, I came to give you peace and joy, hope, truth, security. Satan wants to remove all of that, all right? But if we start to get into the Word of God and we read it and we know it and we believe it all and we know what it really is, which is truth that's authoritative and sufficient and it has all that we need and power to give us hope, then the enemy's like, game over, I lose. I lose. Because that's what it does. Think about Jesus' relationship to the Word of God. He called it truth, wisdom, fruitful blessed life. He called it divine itself. He said it is himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. This is how Jesus saw the Word. And here, look at his life. When he was tempted, he quoted it. When he preached, he quoted it. When he was challenged, he quoted it. Right? When he was praying, he quoted it. When he was suffering, he quoted it. Jesus always went to the Word. He said it was precise to the very punctuation in Matthew chapter 5. He said it was revelation from God in Mark chapter 2. He said it's the standard by which all mankind is going to be judged someday in John chapter 12. He said it's the authority that cannot be challenged in Luke chapter 4. He said it's the agent of our transformation in John 17. And he said it is life more necessary than bread itself. More necessary. So we must resolve as God's church, how do we see the Bible? And what I mean by that is not how do we see it, is it a priceless treasure under glass? What I mean is do we see it as something that changes us and shapes us? Are we trying to correct it or is it correcting us? Do we have power over it or does it have power over us? To give that a context, I'm going to show you one last clip and then I'm going to wrap up after that. Let's go ahead and check it out. What are we up to, sweetheart? Fixing your Bible. I, um... What? Bible's broken. 
Contradictions, false logistics, doesn't make sense. No, no, you, you, you can't... Hit, so we'll integrate non-progressional evolution theory with God's creation of Eden. Eleven inherent metaphoric parallels already there. Eleven. Important number, prime number. One goes into the house of eleven, eleven times, but always comes out one. Noah's Ark is a problem. Really? We'll have to call it early quantum state phenomenon. Only way to fit 5,000 species of mammal in the same boat. Give me that. Maybe you don't fix the Bible. It's broken. It doesn't make sense. It's not about making sense. It's about believing in something. And... Letting that belief be real enough to change your life. It's about faith. You don't fix faith, River. It fixes you. That was for all you Comic-Con nerds right there. So, all four of you. All right, so, myself included. So, I return to Jesus' relationship to the Word. Think about, here's his life. He grows up in this hick town, teenage parents, but that's God's plan. He's swinging a hammer, working hard his whole life. He hits 30 years of age, goes and sees his cousin out in the wilderness. He's baptized by John in the Jordan, comes out of the water. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, immediately drives him into the wilderness, and for 40 days, he eats no food. He's starving. Literally, his body is going to be emaciated. His own body is consuming itself after 40 days. And it's in that scene that it says, And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Right? Which I don't know if you've ever thought about this temptation, but this is the weirdest temptation ever. Like of all the things you could roll in after 40 days, you're like, hey, you should take rock and make a bread. I mean, I think like, here's a guy, he's 30 years old, he's single. Like, why not show up with like a fine-looking chick and be like, hey, you need a wife. You know? And she's got a fruit basket, so you'll get food. You know, like, why this temptation in this way? Well, there's all sorts of theological reasons that people look at for the reason for the temptation. That's not as important as how Jesus responds. He says, but it is written. So he turns to the scriptures. He says, it is written. The man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right? Man will not live by bread alone. What he says is what I said earlier, that this matters more than this. This solves more than this. This heals more than this. And I had to really evaluate my own life, and I looked and I said, um, Really? really. Right? Because I think the ultimate lie Satan wants to give us is trust this more than this. Jesus' words were clear. Man, the word of God matters more than bread, more than how I have bread, earn bread. The metaphor for bread, cash, right? Whatever. Jesus said this matters more. Do I give this more time than I give this? I pick this up every day. Pick it up every day, take it with me all day long. All day long with me all day long. I get home at night, put it right by my dresser. Next day, grab it, do it again. I open it up a lot. I pull things out of a lot. I put things in it a lot. I do a lot with this. I do a lot with bread. 
Do I do the same with Bible? Because Jesus says it matters more. It matters more. And like I said in the end, Satan says, you know what? If you leave it like this, this is perfect. Leave it just like that. It's excellent. Just don't ever, ever pull it out. I become this. Don't let this drive. Don't let this be the priority. Don't let this be first. Keep it under glass. Keep it safe. Keep it revered. Keep it a treasure. Just don't make it a tool. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for the grace that only you could provide. I thank you that you were faithful to do what I did not have the energy to do. Thank you for your love. I thank you for your truth. In your name, amen.